Welcome to another episode of The Worthy Physician. I am your host, Dr. Sapna Shah Huluk, combating physician burnout to reignite your passion for medicine. And today I have a guest that I'm excited to discuss about because he talks about something that is near and dear to my heart. And Mr. Miller, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name, thank you again for having me on. My name is Eric Miller. I am a Chief Advisor and Co-Owner of a firm called Econologics Financial Advisors. And we specialize in working with healthcare practice owners and many different types of many different types of practitioners. We help them with their both their business and but mostly their personal finances to try to get them into a more optimum financial condition. We know how much physicians and healthcare people put into their practice. The business and financial skills aren't weren't really taught to you in school. So we try to really we try to really make sure that you're addressing those needs so that through a lifetime of service that a lot of practice owners give, you make sure that you can at least enjoy the fruits of your labor over that time. Thank you very much for that. And you are absolutely correct. They don't teach finances in residency or medical school. At best, I think we got a lecture on life insurance. And disability insurance. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So can you please tell me what you find with the healthcare providers and the physicians with whom you have worked? What are some of the biggest deficits? I think we touched on one. I, I think that the, and I totally get it. Look, I think most people went to medical school because they wanted to serve people. They wanted to help people. And one of the biggest deficits is that the schools never really teach the business side or the financial side of running a practice. And the day that you decide that you want to be a business owner, it's just a different role. You have to know how to be an executive. You have to know how to be an owner. And they don't really teach you anything about that in school. And it is a whole skill set. And to be successful, unfortunately, you have you can't just ignore those things. So I think that's certainly probably the biggest deficit that we see in with private practice owners is just that, is just really understanding the business side of the healthcare industry, which isn't always pretty sometimes, as I'm sure you're you're pretty aware. And you certainly have to be able, you just have to be able to take your doctor hat off every once in a while and put on like a a business or a CFO hat, so to speak. And it may not be natural to a lot of people. And I get that because you just want to see patients. You do have to make sure you can adopt that mindset, even for that time frame while you're doing it. How do you suggest that physicians start to adapt or build that mindset? I think a lot of it starts with you have to build a team around you of financial professionals because no one teaches physicians about accounting or advanced investing or debt management or how to manage your practice finances. The best, most valuable thing you can do is just really get a good team around you that a good CPA, a good financial advisor that understands your business. I can't emphasize that enough. And a a reputable attorney, you can bounce ideas off of these people. And hopefully they have expertise in working with other physicians in the industry so they can tell you, hey, this is what this person does and this is why they're doing well. So I think that's a real key just is to be able to ask for help and it's okay. 
if you don't know those things <laughs> and find people that that know what they're doing and are competent. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people just will use maybe like local advisors or people that, you know, they got referred to by somebody else and that's okay. I just I really think you need to work with people that understand the business side of healthcare. And there are plenty out there. You're absolutely correct about needing to know the business side of healthcare, which I'm not going to sit here and claim to know, but it is definitely a different beast because there are a lot of moving parts. One thing that would impact a person's thought process, and this podcast, I address physician burnout. Yes. Is that when you're deep down into burnout, you're not always making decisions with a full deck of cards. Have you seen that? With the people with whom you've worked, yeah, I'll give you probably, I'll give you a couple stories on that, and I'll give you one that I, that comes to mind. So I work with a, a veterinarian, and this and veterinarians and dentists have probably the highest rate of suicide that I've seen amongst a lot of the different types of practitioners that you can be. Um, but I had this veterinarian that that came to, that we I had for a client for a while. She came to me and she was like, I am done. I am getting this offer to sell my practice and I am going to take it because I can't take the long hours. I can't take the responsibility. I can't take the staff. She was well, the classic signs of someone that's pretty burnt out. And me recognizing that, I said, look, I get it. I understand. But I don't want you to make a decision when you are in this condition, because I've never seen someone make a decision, financial or otherwise, when they're in burnout, where they've looked back and said, oh, yeah, that was a good decision that I made. Like almost every time I've seen that, people have been like, I made a bad decision because I was, and I get it. You're in like a state of confusion. You're in a state of angst. Most people don't make good decisions when they're in that. So I was able to like fend her off from selling the practice at that point in time and just helped her like say, hey, what are the issues in the practice that are really driving you crazy? And I go, these things are things that you can totally fix. And you know what? A year later that she did. And because of that, she ended up, she did sell her practice a year later, but she sold it for almost twice what they initially offered her. Why? Because she was in a better state of mind at that point. And the practice reflected that. And I thought, so my point of that is just, you know, I just, I very much caution people to make any kind of decision when you're in that state, because it, it's generally not a good decision that follows. No, I would agree. Because if we take the definition of burnout and then we look at the different stage, you know, like not stages, but the different criteria. Mm -hmm. None are actually positive, right? The fatigue, the depersonalization, the cynicism, and that really if, impacts our mood, our decision-making. If you're engaging in an activity that you love and you're not getting either the right financial compensation or the recognition or validation or acknowledgement, that is going to make someone feel upset and angry and tired and purposeless. What we can all do is just take a look at it and say, wow, we as an owner, we bring an awful lot of value to the practice and we have to make sure at least one of the things that I do is I just try to make sure that they're at least paying themselves what they're worth. So I tend to see that a lot where a lot of healthcare practice owners will just underpay themselves what they're actually worth. 
And when they, when I finally doesn't have, it doesn't solve it all the time, but it does really start to get them into the mode of, okay, this is better. Cause at least now I feel like I'm getting the rewards of all the work that I've been doing in the practice. I can't solve everyone's burnout, but from a financial perspective, I do try to do that. And it really does. It's usually around how they compensate themselves because I just, I find they, they're undercompensating themselves for a myriad of reasons. Could you dive further into that? If yes. you would not mind. So one of the thought processes is that you might be able to alleviate burnout to get out of the system and open up your own practice, whether that's direct patient care or billing insurance. But if you're still going to have the same mindset of underpaying, I'm really, that's the reason why I would like to address. I deal a lot with dentists and veterinarians and physical therapists and some other physician model, but there's a lot of insurance reimbursement that we have to deal with. And I know that these insurance companies just are just not easy to deal with. But what I'm talking about is, look, when you own the practice, you know, there are, like I talked about the three roles. You have a practitioner role, you have an executive role, and then you have an owner role. And there, most people will pay themselves a, a salary of some kind as a practitioner. Like usually they, and not to get too technical in the how people set up, but I tend to find that most healthcare practice owners are set up as S-Corps. LLC's Texas S Corp somewhere around there. And they can pull money out in W-2. They pay themselves some kind of a salary. And that's fine. And they should do that. But you also are an executive to a degree, especially if you have some staff. All right. And there should be a compensation for you having to direct other people and manage other people. And there should be a compensation for that as well. But the one that I tend to find that most people don't pay themselves as is the owner. And look, you establish this business and it costs money. A lot of people have to go into debt to to start their practice or if they buy the building. You take a lot of risk because just I think we talked about lawsuits or we will talk about lawsuits or there's a lot of risk in owning a, a business like this. So you have to make sure that you're getting paid back for the risk that you took. And that is where we really try to make sure that the compensation model is appropriate. And what I tend to find is that most healthcare owners are not operating on the right like financial numbers. Like they're underestimating how much production needs to actually occur or how much they need to get from themselves and their staff to really be able to pay themselves for all three roles that they play. And I think once they get that grooved in, they see that it can work. And again, every industry is going to be different. It's harder to do when you have really low reimbursing services. But for the most part, we've been able to show people how to navigate that so that they can make sure that they're paying themselves. It's an old concept of paying yourself first. I just, I show them how to do that when it comes to their business finances. And it seems to work pretty well. And people like it when they see that they're, again, it's not all about money. But it's, it sure does feel good when you feel like you're getting the fruits of your labor paid to you. No, thank you for saying that. And yeah. I would have to agree because medical school's expensive. Yeah. How long do I live like a resident because I've already delayed gratification? I'm not talking about going out and getting a million dollar house. I'm like, every different strokes are different folks, but trying to be financially savvy, you want to actually start living like an adult. You actually want to 
have real furniture, have yeah. a dependable car. It, it's not necessarily going to cure burnout, but it is definitely going to sweeten the deal if you're doing the same work already and you're paying yourself adequately to yes. be able to either reinvest in the business, reinvest in yourself or pay off what got you here in the first place. And that would be your education. I don't know if it's going to solve all the problems of burnout, but it's certainly going to make it so that it it, it eases the stress and the pain of it. Because right. there's nothing worse than feeling like you're putting all of this energy and effort into something and then looking and say, I still have all this debt and I don't have any money in the bank and I, I'm struggling. That, that really compounds it. So if there's just, if there's one thing that we can do, then that would be it to at least minimize the effects of the burnout until maybe you get to the source of it or you and maybe things get things do get better. I think one thing I do know is that even the moments of burnout, it doesn't last forever. Human beings are, I think, are pretty resilient, pretty strong. We can go through a lot. And when I think that one of those things is definitely being able to like see a barrier, an obstacle, and then say, okay, what are some of the steps that I can do? to handle it knowing that if i go if i go through it then there's going to be a brighter future for me again the, the part of my job is just making sure people know they have a bright future because there's nothing worse to not have that as a concept if you think everything's going to hell in a handbasket then that's i don't know if i can solve that no but you can be that ray of sunshine on a cloudy day yeah they'll definitely look and say okay i'm going to get i'm going to i'm going to talk to eric he's going to give me some optimism that something can be done about it. Because I think that's to me is even as bad as everything gets, if you just at least have the idea that something, even one little small thing can be done about the condition that you're in, I think it puts you in a position where you can solve the problem overall. But when you just think that there's nothing else that can be done about it, that's that I think is the most dangerous thing that can that happens when somebody gets into burnout. That that turns into hopelessness and then apathy. And then unfortunately, that's generally the condition that people are in when they just give up and then they turn to drugs or alcohol or even worse to, for those things. You took the words right out of my mouth, actually. I'm sorry. You can say no, it. <laughs> I think that, no, you're absolutely right. The physician suicide rate is actually quite high as well. About 400 physicians die from suicide annually here in the United States. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's it shouldn't be that way at all. I at least once a year I unfortunately have to I hear about it from either one of our clients or one of their colleagues that 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 did that and or just the stress of owning something puts somebody in a position where they get ill or they are, are predisposed themselves to some kind of illness that happens as well and from a financial end it's the only way you can know if you're getting better is that you have to like be able to measure some things like you have measurements like, how do you know a patient's getting better? I have tests I can do. There's blood tests I can do and there's x-rays I can do and I can see progress. And I think from a financial perspective, which is where I, where our, where we take responsibility for it's okay, here's your financial condition and let's just make sure it's getting better. It doesn't have to get like better overnight, but let's just make sure you're on the right track. I think that right there makes people feel better. Let's okay, I'm doing the right things. Let's keep doing this. And that's, that will, I think, avoid some of the effects of burnout, especially if you don't know that you're making progress. No, absolutely, because we have to be able to ask for help. And that's as far as financial consulting. 
again, going back to we're not taught that skill set in medical school or residency. So we need to ask for help. I can't do heart cath. I'm going to refer to cardiology. I cannot do a cholecystectomy or take out your gallbladder. I'm going to refer you to a general surgeon. Yeah. So it's no different. No different at all. But then when we can leverage the finances in order to increase the money in the bank, increase the the net worth of the practice. Yeah. That also gives anybody financial freedom in order to start making decisions where they would actually like to steer their life. That also gives them freedom to move or to pivot. Yeah. Unfor- look, we are we do live in an economic society yep. and money is an important part of that. We can't ignore it. We can we can complain about some people that seem to skirt the system more than others. And that's there, there's a lot of truth to that. But 99% of the financial conditions that I've seen out there really, really aren't because of outside influences or what's happening on the outside environment. It's what the person is doing inside. It's like what they're actually doing. Like I had mentioned that I had a heart incident early in like last year. Okay. And could I blame the stress of running a practice and all this? I probably could, but I know that I wouldn't eat very well. I wasn't taking care of myself and I predisposed myself and my, some genetics that weren't on my side. And that was probably majority of the reason why I had the incident. Okay. The same thing with your finances. We can blame the Oh, the Federal Reserve and the the wild spending of the government and all these other things, right? And insurance companies not reimbursing what we should. I guess we can blame all these things. But when I really look internally, most of the reason people are in the financial condition that they're in is mostly because of things that they've been doing or not doing. And those things can be rectified and fairly quickly, especially for people that are high income earners like like physicians are. Thank you for making the analogy. That's definitely something that I can wrap my head around. Now, from starting out as physician, as an attending, whether it is in private practice or even not, you again, going back to high hurting potential. And if I did have a practice, let's say I'm 10, 15 years, lawsuits are an occupational hazard and in, in medicine whether it's a physician or any type of clinician, honestly, how do we protect our assets? How do we do that? Because we're not, we're also not taught about that in, in medical school. And as we progress through our career, that earning potential keeps going up. That's right. And I think it's a natural thing that will happen is that the more that you see patients, the more people that you help, look, there's going to be instances where something bad goes, something bad happens. And I think that for most people, they have to be aware that is a real thing. And lawsuits are, for the most part, about the money. And they just are. They're about the money. And uh, there are some tools that someone can do to protect their assets. There are actually four main asset protection tools that, that a physician would have at their disposal to protect their assets. The first is that there are state and federal laws that do protect certain assets. So I'll give you an example of this. So I live in Florida. So if I got sued for whatever reason, 100% of my primary residence would be completely off limits to any kind of a lawsuit. Okay. 
you'll see a lot of people move to Florida if they're under attack because it's like, it's a great state for that. Other types of investments like insurance and annuities or products like that, 100% protected from a lawsuit. So you'll see some people, why would I ever own an annuity? It's a terrible investment. Well, maybe, but in certain states, it is 100% protected from a lawsuit. Okay. So state and federal laws would be the first tool that you would have. And of course, you'd have to go to an advisor or an attorney to, to find out what they are, but that would be the first tool that you would have. The second tool that you would have would be like business structures. So this would be like LLCs. I'm sure you've, if anybody that's ever owned re real estate, hey, you got to own your real estate in a limited liability corporation or a limited partnership or own your practice in one of the one of these types of things. Why do they do that? Because they're trying to separate out the person from the business entity. Not, does that always work? Not all the time. We're not trying to create a bulletproof system here. We're just trying to make it more difficult for an attorney to get a hold of your assets. That's all asset protection is. So that would be number two. So number three would be, as amazingly as it sounds, would be debt. For example, a lot of physicians like real estate. And they will buy like apartment complexes or other types of real estate. If you have a, a mortgage on that piece of real estate, the bank is first in line. So there's not a lot of, so the, the, that actually makes it less attractive to a creditor because the debt or the debt puts like a, a barrier there. So you could, they call it a debt shield would be another one. And then finally, just making sure that you have proper insurance. And I know that there's certain limits that you can have. Certainly, professional liability insurance is a must, but there's something also called personal umbrella insurance that you can get, and that that's certainly helpful. You can title certain accounts or assets. I'm not sure if it's if it's this way in Kansas, but there's a little known way you can title an account called tenants by the entirety. Thank you for pointing that out because again, we're not taught that in medical school, and yeah, some of this is common sense. The way it that mostly you, is, yeah. That you were des describing it to me. Yeah, most of it is. And it just takes, this is again, this is why you have to have a really good team around you. Because if you don't have someone that's pointing this out to you, you're just not going to do it because you probably don't know about it. And that's okay because you guys don't know, have to know about everything. Don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's one of the biggest self-sabotage barriers that I've seen with a lot of physicians is that they just, it's like they almost can't stomach that someone knows more than they do. In, in every single area. It's okay. It's totally fine. You're very smart. It doesn't mean that you need to know everything or that you can possibly know all that. And I think the ones that are, that can just let go a little bit. Oh yeah. I'll let you do your thing as long as it makes sense to me. And I think that's a problem in our industry is that we don't explain things simply. And we use a lot of big words and jargon that, that nomenclature that and I guess medical professionals are guilty of that too. But uh, we're all guilty of that in our industries, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I can see physicians getting mad at the financial advisors. Yeah. Or things that our patients get mad at us for. Exactly. Absolutely. It all just comes full circle, doesn't it? It does. That's the thing. You're right. Physicians were taught to that we have to know everything all the time and <clears throat> yep. be like the smartest ones in the room. But yeah, we're not. when it comes to finances, unless you're a financial genius, then fantastic. Plus you're a yeah. physician, right? But yeah, let it go. Yeah, just let it part. go. Yeah, just understand what the concept is and okay, great. And then just have the team implement that. And again, this goes back to be, not having to do everything yourself. 
And that's the only way you're going to expand is being able to let go of certain things and be like, okay, I don't have to do this. In my practice, look, I I stopped advising people one-on-one because it got to a point where I was like, I can't really expand or have time that I want if I'm doing all the work. So I had to figure out a way to make sure that still have a standard of how I want to deal with people and I want my advisors to deal with people, but I got to let them do their own thing too. And I think the same way with physicians that have a practice, you know, if you can get other associates on board to do some of the work, you can spend time on doing other things. And it makes for a much more valuable practice too. Because like when a buyer comes in to buy the practice, if you can, if you have it set up where you're not the only one that has to be there to produce, you probably just doubled the value of your practice because of that. It's all about revenue generation. Yeah. Yeah. Who's generating the revenue? If you're doing it all yourself, they'll still pay you for it, but you're just not going to get as much as if I had two or three other associates that were doing the production. I just have a much more valuable price. Or you can sell it to them and it's still gonna you're still gonna get a pretty good value for it. I think a lot of healthcare owners miss out on the that the value of their business can be much higher than what they think it is. And that again, that varies from industry to industry. And that's that's not easy to do because you got to find people to bring in and train them. And these are all executive functions that a lot of physicians just don't want to do, which again, if they can have a good practice manager that comes in that can help delegate some of the business finances, that's okay too. You don't have to be an expert in all these roles. You're always going to be an owner, but you can decide, do I want to be an owner practitioner and then have a really good executive team to run things? Or do I want to be an owner executive and then just have associates under me that are doing the the patient work? And you can do it either way. It's just know what you like. And it's a I think it's a great way to approach running your practice. Yes. Yes. And that goes back to one of my conversations with HR Huntsman. One of his things was as entrepreneurs or as high achievers, it's very hard to let go. But to expand like what you're exactly what you're saying. You have to let go in order to expand, in order to get to that next level. So yeah. thank you for reiterating that. Yeah, I have that conversation, Dale. I just talked to, it was a physical therapist yesterday that was like, I was doing all the, seeing all the patients every day. And then I finally just said no more. And I just let go. And he goes, my practice doubled because of that. And it's the hardest thing to do, but it's the most rewarding thing to do when you finally are able to do that. And if for the listener, if they wanted to get in touch with you, Eric, how would they get a hold of you? I think the easiest way for someone to get a hold of me, you can just go to econologics.com, which is just E-C-O-N-O-L-O-G-I-C-S. And that is, that's the easiest way. We have all kinds of downloads and we have all kinds of material on the website and you can schedule a consult with, with one of our specialists to talk about anything as it relates to your business and your personal finances. So you do personal finances as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Most what we do is I, I spend a lot of my time talking about the practice just because it is the biggest investment for most people. It's their biggest asset. It's the thing that generates the most money. But really our job is to make sure that you're not dependent upon it for the rest of your life. So we really show people how to utilize their practice better, but for the benefit of their household, 
right? So how do we get out of debt faster at the household level? How do we build more reserves and investments at the household level? How do we minimize our taxes at the household level? Those are all things that that we focus on for owners, but I only deal with owners. Our primary focus is working with healthcare owners just because we know them so well. Thank you so much for your time and for your valuable insight. For me, this was a very invigorating conversation. Thank you so much because it's a wealth of knowledge. Thank you again for having me on. Like, share with a friend because we can all use a little bit of camaraderie combating burnout.